is Palm Sunday, and uh, we wonder why. Why do we call it Palm Sunday? Is this a tradition that dates back, you know, to the Old Testament? No, a tradition tradition that started really on a day Jesus entered into Jerusalem, and he came down off the Mount of Olives through a narrow, winding road, which I got to walk last year, and made his way down across the valley and up to the into the Temple Mount, and entered into the city that way. I want us to read this story coming out of the book of John, chapter 12, and uh, then we'll get into the message. This is found in John 12, beginning at verse 12. It says, On the next day, a large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took the branches of the palm trees, and they went out to meet Him, and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, find a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things, these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and they met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. What a story. What a picture, what an image of, of this, this entrance into Israel, into Jerusalem that day. There's a story of an Episcopal priest. He was preaching in a, in a church that he really wasn't familiar with. He'd been there a few times, but he's, he's now going to be the, the guest preacher and, and on a Sunday morning. And as he stood there at the pulpit and began the service, he tapped on the microphone to make sure that it was on. Well, he didn't hear anything, so he tapped again, and, 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 and still there's nothing there, and, and, he, and he heard nothing. And he, even though he thought it was, it was working, he, he thought to himself whether or not this was, was working at all. So he leaned closer, and he said, there's something wrong with this thing. The congregation, being well-versed in their response, which they normally would do, and they just responded out of nature and also with you. Yes, there is something wrong with this thing and also with me. That is just the way things are. That story kind of illustrates a little bit for us just the danger of doing things that are familiar over and over and over again. And we think sometimes we don't even listen to what's being said. We know something's said, so we respond. We act out of just the training that we have had. We can become so steep in routine that we stop paying attention to things and what we're doing. Now, it can become very dangerous to drive on a road that you've driven on every single day, over and over again. I mean, we, we were talking about that the other day. You can drive this road almost blinded and just keep on going and know which direction you're heading because it's, it's always the same thing day after day. And it's dangerous because we stop being alert. We stop paying attention to the little details of things that are happening around us. We figure we can drive this route with our eyes closed, and if something didn't, different happens on the road, we may not even notice it at all until it's too late. Well, a husband and wife, I think, can do the same thing in their marriage. 
they can take for granted all the things that the other spouse does. In fact, they become so used to those things that, you know, one provides the meals, they cook all the time, they, the other one takes out the garbage all the time, another one does the, does the laundry, the other one's always mowing the yard and, and taking care of the children, and we, we've got our routine of things that we do continually. Before long, we don't even realize that a person is doing those things, and before we know it, we feel that we're the only one putting anything into this relationship. And it's at those points that marital affairs often happen, is when we begin to take the routine of life for granted. And we're not being alert and paying attention to things that slip up. A parent can become so used to having their child filling their life with joy that they don't appreciate their child until it's too late and the child has moved away. And now they're not there. And we regret that they're gone. The same thing is true, I think, about living in a small town. We, we often hear people, you know, gripe about, you know, small towns, I can't wait to get out of here. And, you know, as our kids are raised up here, they, they want to head to the city. They want to get out. They want to explore. They want to do those wonderful things. And, and, and they want to get away from all this small town stuff. And it's kind of smothering us because everybody knows our business. Everybody knows what we're into. And everybody's around. And, and you can't have any privacy, it seems like. And all the time, the unappreciativeness of, of maybe we forget that we've got friendly neighbors who, who care about what's going on in our lives. And, and, and in the cities, sometimes neighbors don't even speak to one another. We have a, a safe community. And in other communities, gunshots ring out all the time. We've got good schools. We, we even have a post office that if the address is not accurate, they know you enough, they put it in your mailbox. <laughs> I mean, you, you can't get that at some places. Small towns have some good things. We become so used to these things that we don't even notice them until they're gone. There's also a danger I think that we face as we come to Easter season. The accounts of the, the triumphal entry as Jesus rides into the city that day. The cross. The resurrection on that morning. They, they become so familiar to us that, that we can easily go through the motions and celebrations without even allowing the message of those events to become a reality to us. So this morning, what I'd like for us to do is I'd like for us to look at this scenario with a pair of fresh eyes. And just see if you can see just a couple things with me this morning. The first thing that I want us to see is, is, is that there is, there's a strong declaration of love. And the second thing that I want us to see is, is that there's, there's a strong reason for hope. Just in this little story of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Well, in this declaration of love, it's an event that's, that's kind of out of the character of Jesus. You have to go back and look at this. Before this, this event takes place on this day, Jesus is always avoiding the spotlight. But, but still, people are always crowding around him. They're finding him. They're searching for him. They're traveling around the lake to catch him in the morning. They're doing all kinds of things. And he's always trying to avoid the spotlight. And he'll, he'll slip away from the crowds. and Maybe he'll go up on a mountain for a while to pray or, or, or things getting chaotic and hectic and, and he, he kind of just disappears into wherever. But this is a little bit different. You see, in John chapter 2, Jesus, he's asked by his mother 
if he would help the friends and the family out of this wedding party that's taking place, and they've run out of wine. And, you know, Jesus, I know what you can do, and would you do something about this? And he tells her, my time is not yet come. But lovingly, he provides that first miracle in Cana. He turns water into wine. And, and, and the bridegroom and his, 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 his party are celebrated because they've brought out the best for last. When normal people, they give the, the best first, and once people have, have drunk a little bit, they start throwing in the cheap stuff. He didn't want to make a, a public scene. In John chapter 6, we see again an occasion where Jesus felt that the people are ready to take him and force him to become king. And they're, they're trying to grab a hold of him and lay their hands on him. And, and they want to proclaim that he's going to be their king. And, and he just kind of slips away. And, and rather than enjoy the public acclaim, he wants him to be quiet about it. And on several other occasions, we see over and over again that Jesus is telling people that he's healed, don't tell anyone. Keep this to yourself. Don't let them know that I've done this. But of course, people don't. Notice also in the past that Jesus never compromised the truth. He generally just kind of walked away from the conflicts of whatever situation was going on. He didn't want to really stir things up and to draw the attention to himself because the attention was already there. However, this day, this Sunday that we call Palm Sunday, the, the triumphal entry day, this day is a lot different because Jesus has planned this day out. I mean, he, he's been working behind the scenes that his disciples don't even know what's going on, but, but he's already made plans ahead of time for what's about to happen. This is a day that, that he is, he's the one that's, that's organizing it. And in the Gospel of Luke, we are told that Jesus had arranged for them to use a donkey. And he told his disciples to go into town and to find this donkey that we tied outside. And, and if anybody were to ask him where they're taking the donkey, just say that the master has need of it. He's already made the preparations. And, and apparently Jesus, he, he's going to use this donkey, and he knows there's going to be a parade. And he's going to come into Jerusalem. It's not just spontaneous. Jesus intends for this event to happen. And the people don't let him down. He has been holding them off and holding them off and holding them off until what he considers to be the right time to orchestrate this event. I don't think it was because Jesus wanted to throw a party in his honor. I, I don't think that's what it was. I, I don't think that he's you know just trying to be a, a boat at this point. You, you see, what he's doing is, is when Jesus catches this glimpse of Jerusalem... He, he stops, and he begins to cry. Now, I, I don't think that was organized, planned, thought out. That's just who he is. 
And in the midst of, of his approach to the city, as he comes down that hillside and he sees it, he just stops. He's got a beautiful vantage point over the temple area and the city of Jerusalem. And we're told that Jesus wept. Two words. But so profound because we have to ask ourselves, why? On a day in which he should be celebrating that they're proclaiming him to be their king, that they're recognizing that he is their Messiah. He is the, he's the one whom God has sent, whom God has prepared for them. And all of a sudden he stops in the middle of this parade and he cries. That's not what they had envisioned. And yet they continue to sing and to celebrate. We've got to ask ourselves, why? Why? Why does he do this on this day in particular? Why now? Well, the first reason is because it was time. Mother, my time has not yet come. Remember that? My time has not yet come. But here we are three years later, and it's time. When they tried to force him to become their king, it was not his time. Now, it was time. It was time for Jesus to do what he came to do. And in John 20, 12, 23, we see that the hour has come. And see, God is determining this, not man. All the other times it was man that was trying to push him forward and, and set him up at that point. This is the time. Matter of fact, when he spent the 40 days in the wilderness, Satan was telling them, you know, since you're the son of God, why don't you do this? Your time has come. It's here. And, and he says, no, no, no. We're not going to do that. And he overcame the temptations to make the time then. Satan was willing to hand over the world if Jesus would just bow down and worship him. but it wasn't the right time. I believe this was the right moment. This was the right time in history for Jesus to make this entrance into Jerusalem to allow himself to be proclaimed king. You see, the leaders, the Pharisees and, and, and the, the leadership there in Jerusalem of, of the religious sect, they decided that it was unwise to, to do anything against Jesus during the Passover. Because if they if they did anything against him, people would rise up against them. And so they said, let, let's let's let things cool down a little bit and then we'll get him. They've been planning this and planning this. And now all of a sudden when they are ready to say let's pause because the Passover's coming, Jesus pushes the hot button. So why is it important to Jesus that these men arrest him during Passover? I mean, that's, that's a good question. Not only because there were, there were so many people in town, but it, it was because it was God's plan for Jesus to die at the exact same time as all the other sacrificial lambs would die for Passover. So to understand the significance of that, you have to understand something about the Passover celebration. You have to go back into the book of Exodus and begin reading about the story of when God brought the people out of Egypt, followed by the ten plagues, and this tenth plague was the one that established this Passover tradition. 
in which death was going to come in and kill all the firstborn men, boy or adult, it didn't matter, that did not have the protection of the blood of the Lamb on them. It was the time in which they were going to have a yearly celebration that would commemorate the freedom that they had from Egypt out of slavery. And on the night called Passover, God struck every firstborn child of the Egyptians, devastating them. And God told the Israelites, you are to take a lamb and you are to kill that lamb and take its blood and pour that blood over the doorpost and the lentil of your house. And you're to use the rest of that lamb and prepare a meal and to have these other things go along with this meal and, and, and remembering what I am doing for you today. And so they did. The sacrifice of the lambs applying the blood to the doorpost of their homes. And this blood of the Lamb would be recognized by the angel of death, and they would pass over. And nobody in that household would die. It was meant to be a picture that pointed to another Lamb who would die in our place to free us from a much greater slavery than Egypt, a slavery of sin and death. It's likely that at the very time that Jesus was on the cross at three in the afternoon, as he was dying and gave up his spirit, that the sacrificial lambs were slaughtered for Passover. And the curtain in the temple then at that moment was torn from top to bottom. And no longer has there been a sacrifice in a temple in Jerusalem for the atonement of the sins of the people of Israel since that moment. And Jesus was the Lamb of God who was taking away the sins of the world. And He was coming into Jerusalem to do exactly that, to demonstrate that He is King of kings and Lord of lords. In a different fashion, as He told Pilate, My kingdom is not of the world. If it were, God would have told you. But it's not. His kingdom is a heavenly kingdom, a kingdom that is an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that is going to last. It's a kingdom that is resolving all the promises that had been made in the past through the prophets. And here he was fulfilling that in this moment. His hour had come. Second, Jesus wanted to be clear that this was the voluntary act, that he could have simply laid low for a while. He could have been conciliatory with the people. He could have just appeased them and, and coming in and done the things, but, but he did not do that. He did not walk away as he had done before. This time, he was coming in. And so we read throughout the New Testament of times when people, they went to kill him, and he simply walked away, and they had no power over him, and they could not take him until he allowed them to do that. Knowing what was before him, Betrayal of Judas, humiliation, suffering, death on a cross. Jesus chose to go to Jerusalem that day, knowing what was going to take place in just a few days from then. 
Man, this is such a, a display of, of such a magnificent love that he has for us because it wasn't that he just wanted to go and die. He did this to demonstrate his own love for us. And that's what Romans 5.8 tells us, that, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's how God demonstrates his love. And so he died on a cross for us. So this message that he's bringing to us then, this message is a message really of love, that he loved us this much that he willingly entered in that day so that he would die later on. It's, it's a practical message. and Some people may even wonder if God could possibly love us that much. Perhaps you've, you've failed Him. Well, there's no perhaps about it. You have failed Him. And so have I. Maybe you're ashamed of what you've done. And you think it's impossible for you to imagine that God would love you enough that He would really do something to restore that. But if we look with fresh eyes at the parade in Jerusalem, I think Jesus is not surprised by our failures. I mean, He came to, to Jerusalem in order to deliver us from such things. That's why He wept. Because He knew how bad we needed Him. He came to Jerusalem in order to deliver us from such things. And He knows what we have done and He wants to make us clean and He wants to set us free. And His invitation is simple. He says, come to me, all you who are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Well, the question I have then is, is, have you done that? Have you come to him for rest? Or are you like Adam and Eve, hiding from the very one who knows what you've done and knows where you are? And has the ability to redeem and restore. Because what you've done to him you think is, is unbearable. Maybe life is difficult for you right now. Perhaps you wonder if God is, is out to get you. I've heard people tell me that. They just think God's out to get them. You know, God did this to me. God did this to me. And, and I don't think that's really what it is. Maybe, maybe you're so pained in life that, that you're, you're questioning whether or not he really does love you. Because he's allowing these things in your life to happen. And I think if that's the case, look again at this parade into Jerusalem. You see, because he went into Jerusalem that day at that specific time for a specific reason to demonstrate his love for you and for me. He was going to go to the cross. And I think we need to realize that His love is so great that you cannot be concerned or certain but that, that, that He would not allow any of the needless suffering to go on in our lives if there were not a purpose behind it. Paul simply understands it this way, that, that he, he takes all the things in life and He works them into something that is good to those of us who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. And that's hard to, to really grasp. He takes all things in life, the good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful, the, the indecent, the, the, the immeasurable things. He takes everything and He is going to use those things no matter what it is 
and somehow he will use it beyond our own comprehension and, and create something that is going to be good out of even the bad. How can he use cancer for good? How can he use divorce for good? How can he use child abuse for good? How can he use a loss of a job for good? How can he use, you begin to name it, but he can. And that is what is so wonderful and special about allowing him to become king of kings and lord of lords because he has the ability to change our lives, to change our world, and we should be the ones shouting out, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and proclaim him to be king because nobody else can do it. Only he can. But he enables us to go beyond our present circumstances in life and the sufferings that we have and he takes us into something that is even greater. It's easy for us to talk about the love of God. But oh, how difficult it is for us to accept it. You understand, he willingly went to Jerusalem and to the cross for you. J.I. Packer writes it this way. He says, if I understand God's love, Why do I ever grumble and show discontent and resentment at the circumstances in which God has placed me? Why am I ever distrustful, fearful, or depressed? Why why do I ever allow myself to grow cool, formal, and half-hearted in the service of the God who loves me so? Why do I ever allow my loyalty to be divided so that God has not all my heart? Packer has some good questions there. Why do we do that? If he loves us that much, why do we continue to not let him. I think the second thing that we need to see is this, that there is a strong reason for hope. When all seems hopeless, there is a strong reason right here that there is hope. Jesus is finding a young donkey, it says here in 14 and 15. And he sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. I mean, it's a quote out of Zechariah 9.9. You read that whole passage there in Zechariah, and you discover that it's a prophecy about Jesus, about a new coming Messiah into Jerusalem. And this was written in a time when Zechariah, when they had no king over Israel, And he's saying, your king is coming riding on a donkey's colt. We have no king. We have just been freed from our captivity in Babylon. And now we're coming back to Jerusalem. Where is the king? He's telling them, look to the future. God has got you covered. And your king is coming. He's not coming on a white steed. He's coming in humility and servanthood. Riding on a young donkey. That prophecy was made nearly 550 years before Jesus rode into Jerusalem that day. That's what's amazing about it. Another author, J.C. Ryle, he gives us a kind of a flavor for the prophecy 
he, he kind of gives his own paraphrase of, of Zechariah 9. Listen to what he says. Fear not, be not cast down or depressed, O daughter of Zion, or inhabitants of Jerusalem, low and depressed as your condition may be now. There will be a day when you shall have a king again. There shall come a day when you will rise on certain public location into that gate, and a king on an ass's colt, not as a warrior with a sword in hand, but a peaceful prince, a just and holy king, better than even David, Solomon, Hezekiah, and Josiah, and burning with, bringing with him salvation for souls. Therefore think not yourselves forsaken, because thou art poor now, and you have no king. Look forward to your coming king. So what does that mean for us? I think it's very simple. God has a plan. I mean, there's, there's more prophetic reference within this. Ray Steadman has, has written about this specific thing in, in a book on Daniel chapter 9. He said the prophecy is about 70 weeks. It is generally understood that the prophecy talks about a specific 490-year period of years in Jewish history, which will begin to run its course when the command was given to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem following their Babylonian captivity. And he says, when 483 years of those years have elapsed, Daniel predicted Messiah, the prince, would then be presented to his people. Now, Sir Robert Anderson has written two books. One is called The Messiah, the Prince, and the other one is Daniel and the Prophet. And in those books, he begins to trace the fulfillment of this prophecy, pointing out that the very day in which Jesus rode into Jerusalem was 483 years after that prophecy was made. The time was now. So what? God has a plan. But I want you to understand, His plan did not end with the coming of Christ into Jerusalem that day. That's just a part of the plan. Another part of that plan is that the Christ is coming again. And He's coming for you and for me if we are willing to humble ourselves and accept Him as King and Lord. See, the world in which we live is not running out of control. God is not surprised by what's taking place in our society today. He's not pleased with it, but He's not caught off guard. The Bible is clear that the coming day when Jesus is going to return is going to come at a time when this humble servant that rides on this donkey is going to come as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the, and the decadence of our world does not surprise him. Matter of fact, he told us that, that the manner in which our world is today was going to happen. Paul writes these words in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Listen to, listen to what he says. This is just 2,000 years ago. He's talking about the way the world is going to move and what's going to happen. He says, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, uh, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, 
without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just if Janus and Jambres oppose Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith, but they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus and Jambres' folly was also. Now, you follow my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and suffering, such as happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You see, God is not wringing His hands wondering what to do. He is in control even when our world is out of control. But listen, you need to understand that in Christ, the things are not out of control in your life. You understand that God has a plan for you too? He does. I know from personal experience that there are times when I see what is going on in and around my life, and I wonder, what is God trying to do? But I need to remind myself about our text here in John twelve sixteen. These things his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. You may not get it right now, but trust me, down the road Christ will make it plain for you to understand. The fact that we don't understand what's going on in our life does not mean that God is not at work. He has promised us that He would lead everyone who believes in Him to that which is ultimately good. You may not understand it, but you can trust Him. When it's hard for us to put our trust out there in the world. And the one thing God wants us to do is He wants us to entrust Him with our lives. And everything we have and everything we are to lay it in his hands. So here's a final question. Are, are, are you kind of coasting in your spiritual life? Have you taken things of God for granted? And are you listening to his word but, but hearing absolutely nothing? Perhaps it's time for you to once again reread some of these scriptures with fresh eyes. Not just going through the routine of it. 
but searching for ways in which he will explain to you and give you good understanding and direction on how you should live. Jesus loves you. Yes, that day that we call Palm Sunday, he's celebrated by the crowds. But he knew that those who were proclaiming him to be their Messiah that day, that in just a few days would turn against him. And they would insult him and they would curse him. And they would scream as loud as they could for the Roman government to take his life. To crucify him. That's how much he loves you. And that day that he entered in, that we celebrate as Palm Sunday, he was thinking of you. And I wonder when he stopped as he was coming down that mountainside, and he wept. If he was crying at that moment because he knew where I was. Lost without him. I believe he shed his tears not only for me, but for you as well. That, my friends, is love. We're going to have a invitation.